Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another great session. Today, we have Ravi Van Ketesan. Ravi was a chairman of Microsoft India. He serves on the board of Rockefeller Foundation and Hitachi, and he is the founder for the Global Alliance for Mass Entrepreneurship. Ravi has an MBA from Harvard, and he just published a terrific book that I highly recommend. It is called, What the Hack Do I Do With My Life? How to Flourish in Our Turbulent Times. Welcome, Ravi. It's a privilege to have you with us today. Hey, Chris. It's um, it's uh, you know thrilled to be talking to you. Your podcast is beginning to make waves, and uh, people here in India are also aware of it. So it's a delight to be in conversation. Thank you, Ravi. Ravi, to begin with, could you take us back and share with us your backstory? Backstory is what? The life story? A little bit of your life story, because you achieved so much in your life, and then shit wasn't easy. So, yeah. So, what's a quick uh, summary? Uh, I was born in India um, in 1963. So, I'm about just turned 59. Um, I grew up um, in a very middle-class home. My father was a scientist and mathematician. Mother was a homemaker. And I had, uh, I grew up in the shadow of a very dazzling, uh, extroverted, very brilliant elder sister. So I was always the timid one who couldn't measure up. Um, I uh, had a very, very uh, difficult early start in the sense I was not confident, very shy, not good at academics, terrible at sports, not socially popular. <laughs> so even my mother was very worried about what is this boy going to do in his life? Um, everything changed for me uh, in high school where I had a wonderful teacher. And one day out of the blue, she said, Ravi is going to be a great scientist. Now, the interesting thing is, at that point, there was no data that would support her statement. But, you know, there's this thing called the Pygmalion effect, where we rise or fall to meet expectations. So suddenly, I started believing in what she said, studied really hard to, you know, live up to her expectations and started doing quite well. And, you know, from there, things started improving. Those days in India, you had to be either an engineer or a doctor in order to be seen as successful. Everything else was, um, you know, a, a bit of a failure, a disappointment to the family. So I decided to study engineering and I um, went to a place which is now famous called the Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay. Um, now, uh, in the mid 80s, when I was graduating, there were almost um, no great opportunities for bright, ambitious young people in India. So most of my class uh, emigrated. 
and I joined the thundering stampede to the US. Uh, I came to the US to do my um, PhD, but ended up um, leaving after a master's and got a job. And I spent the next 16 years with a fantastic company in the Midwest called Cummins Engine Company, uh, making diesel engines. Um, I spent a lot of time running factories in, um, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina and Georgia. Then I moved back to India um, and that's how, you know, I came to do really interesting things. I went back in 1996, not realizing it would be my uh, home. I thought I would go for a short time. Um, we, you know, did a number of very interesting things. So in 2003, it caught the attention of Microsoft. Um, so I got headhunted by Microsoft. It was really funny story because I told the headhunter, look, I don't even do my email. Uh, those days, my secretary used to print my email and give me a folder and I would take it home and after dinner, write it, write up my replies and give it back to him in the next morning. But he said, don't be an ass. Uh, how often do you go get to meet Bill Gates? So just get on a plane. If you don't want to do it later, that's fine. So that's how I got to um, interview with uh, Microsoft and meet Bill. And you know, I decided, yeah, um, in those days, Microsoft was about as radioactive a company as Facebook is today. <laughs> so ignoring all the advice of friends, mentors, and family, I joined. And uh, you know, I spent eight fabulous years there. We built Microsoft up to the, uh, India up to the la second largest geography for Microsoft after the US. And then in 2011, I got bored. I decided I wanted to do something very different, but I didn't know what to do. Um, the only thing I was very clear about, Chris, is that I don't want to be an employee again. I don't want to be on that treadmill with somebody else controlling the speed. You know, uh, life's too short to be a hamster. So I decided, okay, um, too bad I have to give up a great title and good money and everything else. But let me go out and try different things. So over the last 10 years, I've tried many, many experiments to gradually arrive at you know, what I do today. Uh, some of the experiments were in the social sector and I grew um, uh, more and more interested in trying to solve societal problems. And I started out with uh, an organization called Social Venture Partners, which I started, which is very successful in India. We bring together successful people through philanthropy. That led to forming game, which you talked about in my in introducing me. We're trying to trigger a massive entrepreneurial movement across India, not just tech startups, but every kind of startup, not just in the big cities, but tiny towns um, and so forth. That got the attention of UNICEF. They said, can you join us and help take this global? So I'm also the UNICEF special representative for youth and I um, work with uh, young people in 20, 25 countries now. Um, and so more and more of my time goes there. And uh, of course I love business, so I continue to be engaged with business, uh, but these days it's quite small. I just serve on the board of Hitachi in Japan, which is a fabulously interesting company. Over the decade, I've got very interested in writing. My first book was more about how do you succeed in India as a, as a global company? That did very well. But then um, these days I'm more and more interested in simply helping people figure out their life, uh, reach more of their potential. 
And that's how the second book came to be. So these days I write much more about, um, you know, things like personal leadership and um, how to navigate the chaos and how to be successful and what does success even mean, those sorts of things. And I'll give lots of talks about it. Anyway, here's a long-winded answer to your simple question. I love that. What your teacher did for you is so incredible and so important. I had a similar story in my life when I immigrated from Russia to uh, South Africa. I realized that my degree from Russia was not recognized in the West. It couldn't be found even in databases. So I had to go back and study again, but my English was really bad at the time. And I remember I was so afraid that I'm going to fail. And somebody told me, you're not only going to succeed, you're going to graduate with straight A's. You're going to get all straight A's. And when I go and did my first semester, I got straight A's, even though it was almost impossible to achieve. And I think that it is this one person believing in you that makes such a big difference. And I would ask our viewers and listeners, if you can be that person for someone else this week, please do that because it can change someone's life. And it can be part of your legacy because they will go on and do bigger things and they will be in a position to contribute at a much higher level. And that is part of your legacy as well. That's a great point. One of the things uh, in this book is I begin with a dedication. And the opening quote is from uh, you know, the uh, statement by the psychologist, Carol Dweck. She's very famous nowadays for this growth mindset. Mm -hmm. But in her book, she says, a person's true potential is unknown and unknowable. It is impossible to foresee what can be accomplished with years of passion, toil, and training. And so, you know, when I look at my life, that is certainly this true. I, and when I hear your story, Chris, it's, it's the same thing. It is impossible to foresee what anyone can achieve. So to your listeners, I say not only show faith and belief in in someone else and other people, but most of all, believe in your yourself and your own ability to do extraordinary things. 100%. And I think what your teacher did for you and what my friend did for me, they helped us shift our identity. And yeah. you can never achieve more than what you believe you can, in my experience. Well, thank you for saying that because the um, opening of chapter two says, what you believe is what you achieve. And that's an old statement by Bill Gates. And there's another even older statement by Henry Ford, who says whether you, you believe you can or whether you believe you cannot, you're right. So our self-belief just profoundly shapes whatever happens in our life, what we achieve, how we manifest, whether we are capable of being happy or not, all these things are determined exactly by that belief. Very true. And that one statement that your teacher told you and one statement that I received, it was this trigger that resulted in chain of events that continued for decades. Yes. And even if you don't have someone in your life, and I'm speaking to our viewers and listeners, who can be that trigger for you, you can be that trigger for yourself. And very interestingly, there's something magical when you start encouraging others. 
their energy comes back to you and you feel encouraged yourself. Okay. So it's a, it, yeah, there's a fair degree of uh, self-interest in, in trying to encourage other people. It says, right, there's an old statement that says that a little bit of fragrance clings to the hand that gives the rose, yes. which is uh, quite a nice metaphor on Valentine's Day. <laughs> yes, very true. And it also makes you a great leader because what makes you a great leader is when you care not only about your own success, but also you are leading people towards something bigger than what they could achieve without your leadership. And when you yep. are believing in someone and encouraging someone, you're being a great leader. Indeed. Ravi, in your book, you mentioned the old ideas about work, success, lifestyle, no longer work, and they have not worked for a long time but it took a pandemic to help us see this. In your experience, what do you think works now? What, look, for a very long time, certainly most of the last century, um, there was a belief that uh, education, uh, particularly higher education, was a ticket to success. And so, you know, if you worked reasonably hard, got a reasonable education, then there would be a job. And again, if you work reasonably hard, you would rise and good things would happen. And, you know, certainly my generation um, and my the previous generations uh, certainly benefited from that. Um, but one of the things uh, that I noticed is for the last uh, couple of decades, this is breaking down. This escalator is no longer as smooth or guaranteed. So many things have, are changing, Chris. One is the education system in most countries is becoming less and less relevant. Okay, It's designed for the world that no longer exists, a stable, stable world. Um, where information was scarce. So for, for instance, when information is scarce, you, it, it is important to memorize as many, as many facts as you can. Today, inf information is abundant. Every child with a cell phone has the whole universe um, at her fingertips. So that's no longer important. What is important is very different skills like creativity and problem solving, um, getting, a, you know, working with others, which are called 21st century skills. Those are not taught in schools and colleges. The other thing that's changed is there are fewer jobs out there. I know that it's a strange time to be saying it in the US where there is actually a profound shortage of labor and skills of every sort, from truck driver to um, you know um, waitress uh, and waitressing at a restaurant to um, you know data scientists, any kind of skill is in short supply. But I think that's somewhat temporary, and certainly when you look at most of the rest of the world, that is not true. And so the the idea that there's a stable job uh, waiting for you is becoming less and less applicable, which means what? More and more of us have much earlier in life to learn how to stand on our own feet, become self-employed, if not an entrepreneur, in the way that you have uh, uh, successfully done. So that's a big, big, big shift. The other thing is 
you know, the idea that you live your life based on somebody else's definition of success, society's definition of success is I think um, quite dangerous because what society considers success is things like, you know, your affluence and lifestyle that comes from that or the number of social media followers you have and how famous you are. And if you pursue these things, then the, the, they're pretty high risks that you can go off uh, on a path that won't end well. So it becomes fairly important to sort out for yourself, what does success mean for you and try and live your life in that way. So um, I can go on and on and on. For instance, the way we live life, I mean, the planet is collapsing because of, our, of the way in which we live. And the pandemic held a mirror up at least for two years. I think we have learned nothing. And we're all trying as rapidly to go back to the, the way we were, which is a pity. But at least for two years, we were reminded that we have to live in harmony with nature. Uh, and you know um, we can't continue to live in the ways we do. So I think that's an important thing. Um, I think the pandemic has also taught us that we are one. You can't ignore the poor person in Africa because there's a direct connection. And if you ignore Africa, the virus is going to mutate and blow right back. Okay, so we are one. And unless we are able and willing to lift up all of humanity, uh, our own success is going to be unsustainable and temporary. I think there were many, many fantastic lessons uh, about our present and future in the pandemic. I think some people have learned them and are trying to internalize and change. But uh, unfortunately, Chris, I don't think many are very conscious of uh, <laughs> what we need to learn. I agree. Ravi, and what you mentioned about us being one, it is so important. And I believe that the more people we are trying to help, the bigger our potential becomes. Yeah, but I don't want this to become a moralistic statement. This is not about being, do, you know, doing the right thing because that doesn't necessarily resonate with everyone. I think that is a completely self-interested reason for doing this. So for instance, let's say you end up with a really unequal society, okay? A few really affluent, very successful people, the vast majority left behind. And, let's, and you're lucky enough to be in that group because you work at Google or wherever. It, it won't last, why? Because these, people who are left behind are angry and resentful and they they will be their feelings will be exploited by some leader like trump but there are many like him all over the world in your own former country in my country every country and therefore the politics are going to be very different and your country your society will evolve in a way that you won't like Okay, so the, uh, the trick here is to make sure that nobody is left behind to the greatest possible extent. And it is purely out of self-interest. Yes, even if just out of self-interest, it's so important to do. Yep. I think with so much change and turbulence, 
what can people do to flourish in our current times? It's very simple answer, Chris. Read the book. <laughs> no, that's why I wrote the book. It, it says how to flourish in our turbulent times. And by the way, in the on the cover in the middle, there's a little T-Rex. And the reason there's T-Rex out here is we all know the story of how um, the extinction happened. An asteroid hit the Earth 65 million years ago. There was enormous and sudden change. Most animals and plants could not adapt to so much change, so they went extinct. A few did learn to adapt. Amongst them, our ancestors, the early mammals, and they became dominant. So uh, this is a pretty good metaphor for these times. We are going through an extraordinary amount of change. And therefore, and change is you know, neither good nor bad. It's good if you know how to adapt. It's bad if you don't. So uh, if you have a the right mindset, the right skills, and some of the right approaches, there's never been a time where opportunities have been more abundant. If on the other hand, you're saying, why is this happening? When is somebody going to come and rescue me? Things are going to be very bad. And unlike in my times, you know, uh, where most people could be average and things would be fine, and you could just sleepwalk your way through life, Today, if you don't, if you're not intentional, you're not making better choices and decisions, you don't actively work on mindset and skills and so forth, you're going to get pretty badly hurt. And I think that's unnecessary and can be devastating. And that's why I wrote the book. So what you can do is think very, very intentionally about a set of choices. For instance, Sim simple but most important thing, what does success mean to me, okay? This is not a question most of us think about. You just, it, you know, programmed uh, that the idea of success is programmed into you in childhood by your parents, by your teachers, and you're living out that. Um, what is failure? I hate the word failure. I devote quite a lot of uh, uh, attention to getting people to think uh, not about failure, but setbacks. And setbacks are not bad. They are an essential integral part of how you learn. So like this, I think if you get intentional about a whole set of things, who do you spend time with? Who do you trust? Uh, what, where do you get your information and how do you know it's right? Um, you know, uh, who are the heroes you, you believe? Uh, where do you choose to live? Uh, and you know, I think that has profound consequences today. So, yeah, I, I just say be intentional, more and more intentional about a set of things. And that's how, that's how you will make better decisions and flourish. Ravi, what are the unprecedented opportunities people should not miss? Well, the, the thing to realize is challenges and opportunities are one and the same. Okay very often, and particularly in this century, opportunities come disguised as challenges. So you take the mother of all challenges, which is climate change. And it is in many ways a catastrophe in most parts of the world, and it's going to get a lot worse. However, moving to a net zero world, decarbonizing over the next 30, 40 years is one of the biggest opportunities in humanity, in human history. Uh, 
it's going to be by most projections a 50 trillion dollar economy the internet economy is just 5 trillion so this is a wave that is much bigger and so think about all the opportunities that are there to build businesses that solve these problems they're not just big scale businesses that require a lot of capital like making new batteries there are lots and lots of local opportunities like local food like waste recycling uh you know re doing secondhand um, uh, goods and so on and so forth just millions of opportunities um so i think the trick is to learn to see opportunities all around you okay there's just so for instance just a simple one i wrote this book if i wanted if i were at a stage in my life let's say your stage i'd start building a business around this okay you start creating content you start giving talks you start creating courses programs or online offline charging for it i can build as big a business as i choose to by just going after this it's not what motivates me right now that's a different matter but the point is today there are just boundless number of issues and the, I, in the book i say um a pessimist is somebody who sees, or rather an optimist is somebody who sees an opportunity in every problem. A pessimist sees a problem in every opportunity. And so the trick is to train yourself to see, notice, and act on these opportunities. They're everywhere. They are everywhere. And today there's also capital. The world is awash in capital. So it's not, you can't, if you say, look, where are the resources? I think that's a really um, poor question. What matters today is resourcefulness, not resources. And the world is going to beat a path to your door if you have an interesting idea and you're doing something about it. I 100% agree. In the book, you talk about the importance of developing a set of key anchors our beliefs, commitments, important relationships, and spirituality. In your experience, what are the effective ways to develop them? And I know it is a very broad question, but if you could share with us some practical things people can use tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. One of the things that I emphasize is the fact that many of us are probably going to live much longer than our parents. Um, as they say that the first person who will live to be 150 already has been born. And the listeners or viewers of this uh, conversation can re reasonably expect to live to their 90s, okay? And that is both good news and bad news. The bad news is the longer you live, the more ch changes and transitions you will be forced to make. Okay, there are many more shocks that you will encounter, many more transitions that you will have to navigate. And the most important thing to, to prepare yourself to navigate these, these changes is what are called intangible assets. Um, we all tend to pay attention, or many of us pay attention to our tangible assets, which is our money, the way we invest, buying a home, creating a nest egg, and that's very important. But Chris, the intangible assets are even more important. And those are things like your close 
family and friends. Okay, your network, your reputation, your skills and expertise, your beliefs, your spirituality, all these things. Why they are important is two reasons. One is when you have a shock, these are the things that cushion you and help you stand up again. Otherwise you get crushed. So imagine you just lose, lose your job or you lose a loved one or your whole family gets wiped out or you're in an accident and you get, you know, you lose a critical um, ability. It's just devastating. But these assets, if you've cultivated them, family, friends, faith, spirituality, they help you get up. The second thing is they help you find your next gig. Your, your next, they help you get through the transition to whatever is to, is to be next. So all I encourage in this book is don't just pay attention to those, uh, the tangible assets, the intangible assets in the long run are more important. If you look at all the extraordinarily different things I've done over the years, and that too in different continents, private sector, government, social sector, the reason I'm able to make these transition is because I've paid attention to these intangible assets. How do you cultivate them? Again, by paying attention. There is this whole idea of the attention economy. And these days we're all so distracted. We're so distracted by social media and you know, the cell phone and everything is sucking up our attention. And therefore we're unable to pay attention to what is worth paying attention to, which is these things. The more you pay attention to what's important, naturally those things will flower. So I don't think this is magic. You just start spending more time thinking about these issues and it comes naturally. Ravi, and you mentioned before mindset as one of the key elements to pay attention to. And I 100% agree. I always tell my clients that mindset, purpose, the why, those are key elements that are basically 80% of success. Yes. And I was wondering, when in your journey you started paying attention to your mindset, and what were some effective ways that helped you adjust your mindset? Well, I don't think I got very conscious about the fact that everything happens in our mind till a few years ago. But much earlier, um, I began to realize that the answer to many of my difficulties, the solution to many of my difficulties lay within me. And for instance, in the book, I relate some very funny examples. So I talk about the fact that when I first time became a manager, till then I'd been an individual contributor and engineer. And then suddenly at the age of 24, I had to manage a team that to a team of uh, unionized workers in an American factory. And I was a very ineffective, demotivating manager. And Monday on Sunday nights, I would literally be in tears thinking about going to work on Monday. I didn't want to. And so did those guys. They were also unhappy about coming to work. And then one day I realized we can't continue like this. And I reflected, and th at that time, I actually came across a wonderful book called The Human um, Side of Enterprise. But I began to realize that much of my ineffectiveness as a manager was because I didn't 
I had a negative view of, of people. I thought most people didn't want to work. They wanted to escape. Uh, they would come up with excuses and therefore they need to be micromanaged, uh, followed up, chased, etc. I would actually chase these, uh, some of our machine operators out of the men's toilet because that's where they'd be hiding. And then I realized that's maybe true for some small percentage, but the vast majority aren't like that. So by changing my belief, I began to change how I managed and led. And about a year later, I went off to Harvard Business School. And then when I was applying, I had to get a reference letter. And I didn't go to the CEO of the company. I went to the union leader of our factory and he wrote the most glowing letter. And that's what got me into business school because how often do you get a union leader saying this kid is a good kid? So So that was a conscious attempt to look inside me and say, how am I contributing to the problem? Much later, I realized I was a fairly negative person, okay? I always would see the glass half empty. I would see your performance as, yeah, sure, Chris, you did okay. But look at all the things you didn't do. And that's not very motivating or inspiring. And so I said, if I want to get more from our, from our people, I have to change into much more of an optimist who's able to see the positive in people and positive in situations. So I worked on myself for four or five years and became much more optimistic. So later, it's only in the last few years I've realized how everything is like this, how everything begins with our beliefs, our values, the stories we have about ourselves, about each other, about the world. And therefore, as uh, the teacher Wayne Dyer used to say, when you change the way you see things, the things you see change. So it's so important to go back and look at your mindset. And I also write that a mindset is like software. It's reprogrammable. If you can can, uh, rewrite the code and your reality will change. Ravi, and what were some effective ways that you found to reprogram your software? I think the most important thing is to become aware that that there is a situation here. It's not to your liking. And sure, you can remove yourself from it. But if you need to stay engaged, then the solution lies within you. Okay? So... Once you realize that, you can begin to unpack your assumptions and stories and so forth. So for instance, can I tell another story? Please. So I had a very controlling mother. Um, She was a wonderful person who loved me to bits, but she had a very clear idea of what I should do to be happy. And Later in her life, she became ill, so uh, she came to live with me, and it was quite difficult. And we had a tough relationship which, and where we made each other unhappy. One of the ways I found out of this was I realized that I was very judgmental. I was constantly judging her, wanting her to change and improve, and she was already quite old. And, you know, she is who she is. She's unlikely to change. So moving from judgment to acceptance 
just magically changed our relationship. She no longer felt judged. And therefore, she became a kinder, gentler person towards everyone, including me and everyone else. And we had the best last two years of her life. I give this as a small personal example. It's not in the workplace. It's not about leadership. It's about human relations. So when you have a difficult relationship with another person, all you can do is go back and change yourself. Okay. And the chances are the relationship will change the way the other person engages will change also. So this is how I, I, I practice. You are always half of the relationship between two people. And no. another important element is that you can never influence someone if you're judging them. It's very hard. You may Impossible. be you're very talented, but it's very hard. Yeah, you can influence them, but not in the ways you want. <laughs> you are influencing them, but in exactly the opposite ways. They go off to do exactly the opposite. Yes. So the first step is stop judging. Put yourself yeah. in their shoes. You don't know what they went through. You never walked through <clears throat> their lifetime. No, or because you don't have any idea of what is reality. What you have is a story about them. Okay, that's all you have. You've made up a story of, about them based on their behavior. Okay, and it may or may not be true at all. And this is why, you know, Gandhiji, Mahatma Gandhi said many important things, but one of the most important things is be the change you wish to see in the world. And it's true in relationships as well. Your only hope is to change yourself. And it's not, again, a moral thing. It's a practical thing. Yes, and you're 100% right. There's also confirmation bias. You see what, what is aligned with your story. Once you change your story, you will see different things. Correct. As There's an old proverb that says, um, nothing is as it is. Everything is the way we are. We see, every, we see the whole world and other people through the prism or lens of our mindset. And that's why, again, reviewing your beliefs, assumptions, and stories can change your reality. Did you ever came across a limiting belief that you struggled to break? And what helped? Sure. I was all, look, I was always afraid to go out on my own because I wasn't sure I would be successful. I, I was very, very hooked on recognition, admiration of society, all, the, all that. And so I stayed frozen because I was a big wheel in a big company. I was important. And that was a limiting belief. And it kept me stuck and doing something I was no longer enjoying for, for too long. And one of the things I realized about fears, any fear, fear of failure, fear of being laughed at, fear of being punished, is it's mostly in the mind, okay? And the, and the only way you can overcome your fear is by confronting it. You, as Sheryl Sandberg says, you lean into your fears. And when you lean into your fears, what you realize it, oh, it doesn't even exist, I made it up. So, for instance, when I left Microsoft, 
I decided very consciously to not take another job just like it. And I went off with without much of a plan, trusting that things would work out, tried a lot of experiments, some, some worked, some didn't. It was very uncomfortable in the first years, but eventually I, I found my way. And, you know, I think things are very good today. So that was the limiting belief. In fact, I wrote a CVs in 2012, 13, in a very popular Indian paper called the Economic Times, the fear of being nobody. And it was, it's still there on the internet. And it got, you know, a million and a half views. And uh, I realized everybody is stuck with these kinds of apprehensions, which are limiting. So all the things we say, well, I'm capable of this, I'm not capable of that. And right now, for instance, I, I had a very bad knee injury from running and I stopped running in 2005. I'm so sorry. And I really, really miss it. So I said, this year I am going to run 10K at least. I'm gonna run a 10K race at least. And it's only early February. And I can tell you I've started running 100 meters uh, at a time again. You know, I've strengthened my uh, my muscles, and I'm able to um, get slowly get back. What is it? It's just belief. If you believe you can run a marathon, you can. I know somebody who's just finished their PhD. They're in their mid seventies. Okay, I talk about uh, you know people who are doing astonishing things at different ages. What is that? It's belief. So. Uh, the key thing is to become aware of where your belief is holding you back. It's limiting you. And then you lean in. Very often it works out. Not always. Ravi, we are getting close to the end of the session. I wanted to ask you if you could leave our viewers and listeners with five practical steps they can take. And one of them definitely should be getting the book because it is packed with value. <laughs> But what would you give them? What would you ask them to do? Actually, um, Chris, I, I spent a lot of time when I was thinking about this book, saying, what can I say that, is, that won't sound preachy? Okay? Because nobody wants to be preached to. Each one's life is unique, and their circumstances at this moment are unique. Okay? So that's why I say in the beginning, look, I'm giving you a Lego set. It's got a lot of ideas, a lot of pieces. Not everything fits right now, okay? So you take what fits and you make your own thing, okay? So I, if you ask me what, what generic advice would I give? You know, I end the book with a, one of the most powerful um, quotes uh, I've ever encountered. It changed my life. And it's by um, a professor from Stanford who no, uh, who's no longer there, Jim March. But he says, look, and I'm, I'm reading it. Um, he says, in the end, we are very minor blips in a cosmic story. All our hopes are minor except to us but some things do matter. And what might make a difference to us is if in our tiny roles, in our brief time, 
we inhabit life gently and add more beauty than ugliness. So what I would tell your listeners is this, just spend five minutes today trying to answer the question, what, what does living life more gently look like for you? And what a couple of things you can do to make the world more beautiful in the ways that you uniquely can. And that's all the, uh, you know, two questions I would leave people with. Thank you, Ravi. Another question I have, it may be unusual. It just came to my mind and I would love to ask you, what were two, three insights, realizations that you had in your life that were life-changing for you? I think the most <clears throat> life-changing realization for me and I think this is true for most human beings, is what is called agency. The belief that no matter where, what your situation, you can make some decisions and choices. You're not a victim. And no matter how desperate your situation, you can make some choices, some decisions, and work towards a better future. So, I think that was life-changing for me. And the main thing we do in our work with young kids in UNICEF uh, through this project that I work on is helping more and more young people from the poorest, most difficult backgrounds come to that understanding for themselves. And once that's, they find that switch, they're off. And so that would be one life-changing thing, I think. Another life-changing thing to me has been that more people are good and want to do good than not. And therefore, I approach most people, strangers, um, everyone, with the belief that they're fundamentally decent people. Sometimes I'm wrong. Clearly, I'm, you know, I get disappointed or misled or whatever. But uh, I think I've been able to accomplish way more than I would have by being by having that trust and faith uh, in people. And the other life-changing thing is the realization that you can't take anything with you to the next life or whatever is out there. And therefore, beyond a point, accumulation is completely pointless. And, and so I began to optimize more for my time, which is the most finite and precious thing. So 10 years ago, I began optimizing for time rather than achievement. And I think that's been life changing. Thank you, Ravi. Is there anything else you would like to share? Anything you wanted to cover, but I didn't ask about it. No, I would simply remind everybody that your potential is unknown and unknowable. And don't believe anything that, to the contrary that anybody else has told you or is telling you. So uh, we all have the capacity for greatness. Um, and yeah, you need to just have faith in yourself. And your potential is even bigger than what you realize. It's bigger. Always. 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 Yeah. Ravid, where can listeners find you? Oh, where can listeners find me? Um, well, 
Uh, you can find me, uh, of course, uh, um, a virtual uh, self of me is there on YouTube and social media. I'm very, very engaged and active on LinkedIn. Um, that is my way of um, having some possibility of engaging with a large number of people. Um, yeah. And, and then you you. one of your articles was viewed by something like 2 million people. The one about IT. Yeah, that bad. one, I think it's crossed 2.6 million. Amazing. Uh, which is uh, which says that there was something out there that spoke to a lot of people. Reinvent yourself self or suffer. <laughs> it was very tough, hard-hitting article, hard-hitting message. It and it was, it was the genesis of what became this book. You are a very gifted writer. I love oh, reading you. the book. You have such beautiful way with words and titles. I think that's uh, kind of you to say. I try to write in a way like I'm speaking to the reader, okay? So I try to have the best possible conversation with the reader. And I like to write simply so that anyone can understand. You don't have to be you know, native English speaker, a professional. You, the youngest readers of my book are about 15 and 16. And they're, yeah, and the oldest are in their 80s and they of all professions or non-professions. And yeah, so I like to make things simple. And I think that's the key to good writing. Just be simple and authentic and put yourself out there. I 100% agree. Just speak to one person. Speak to somebody who needs your message. And it, yes. it goes for speaking, it goes for writing. Indeed. So thank you, Chris. It's been fabulous uh, uh, being in conversation with you. And let's see where this leads. But I hope uh, some people find it uh, useful. Thank you, Ravi. Thanks, everyone, again, for tuning in. Our guest today, again, has been Ravi Van Ketesan. Make sure to check out Ravi's terrific book. It's really worthwhile to read. So don't wait. Get it today while it is available. You never know. It is called, What the Heck Do I Do With My Life? How to Flourish in Our Turbulent Times. And I'll see you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.